Um, as Brian mentioned, my name is Chad Scruggs. I'm one of the ministers here at Park City's Presbyterian Church. And the intent for our mornings together, basically, is to study the Bible. So one of the presuppositions, one of the beliefs that we have here at PCPC is that when we engage in God's Word together, as we listen to Him speak to us as men, God begins to change us in the power of His Spirit. And over the next ten weeks, we're going to meet together every week here until November the 18th and study three chapters in the book of Romans, in Paul's letter to the Romans. My intent this week is to give you some sense of an overview to the book as a whole, and then Paul Goebel, another one of our pastors, will begin next week with Romans 6. We'll actually get into the first few verses of Paul's message in Romans 6. Has anyone here ever seen a documentary called North America? It was Tom Selleck did it. Anybody? Some of you? Gosh, that's too bad. It's very good. (laughs) So I'm a channel flipper, and I come upon North America here recently, maybe a year ago, the Discovery Channel did it, and it was, it was Tom Selleck's voice that sort of made me stick, right? And so you can probably guess what it's about. It's about um, North America, uh, sort of the diversity and the landscape and the ecosystem of our continent. And in one particular episode, um, I'm laying on my couch eating a cookie, and uh, Tom begins to talk to me about a fox, a red fox. And I'm watching, I'm enthralled by the red fox. Because the red fox can do something very uh, impressive. So uh, the camera uh, pans, there's a panoramic view of, um, of winter in the Dakotas. Okay? And there is no movement for miles. All you see is sort of the barrenness, the icy landscape, the windswept plains. And then you see the fox that is totally paralyzed with concentration. There's no movement for miles and he himself isn't moving. And then the camera focuses in on the fox. And he is paralyzed with concentration. And all of a sudden, without indication or warning, the fox dives up straight into the air and then turns his nose downward and goes headlong into the snow. He's standing on three feet of snow. And the fox emerges with a mouse locked between his jaws. Right? Very impressive feat, I think to myself, as I'm eating my cookie on the couch which I also had to hunt for in a different way. Even more amazing, though, is Tom's explanation of how the fox actually succeeds and how he lives and eats in the Dakota winters. So what would you think it would be? How does the fox find the mouse? What do you think? Not by smell. Anyone else? No, not by sound. Anyone else? It's clearly not by sight. So here's, not by touch either, here's what Tom tells me. I believe him. He says this. The fox hunts using the magnetic field of the planet. Very cool. It is the same coordination that missiles use to locate their targets. So here's what happens. When the fox is facing north, when he has his sight set on the North Pole, he succeeds in the hunt 75% of the time. But if he is not facing north, if he is facing in any other direction, south, east, and west, he fails every single time. He always, he always misses the mouse. So somehow the fox has realized and recognized and learned to live with with this reality that he has to be facing in the right direction in order to eat. He has begun to realize that he has to be connected to a power that is outside of him in order for him to flourish in the harshest realities of his own world. His, his intellect isn't enough. His instincts aren't enough. His hard work and his resolve are not enough. 
He has to be connected to something beyond himself in order to live. The basic message of the Bible is that that is true for each one of you where you sit this morning. That there is a power to which you must be connected outside of you in order to flourish in the harshest realities of your own world and your own lives. Thomas Merton, I don't expect you to know that name, but Thomas Merton was what many consider to be a spiritual giant of the 20th century. He has quite a story. Until his late 20s, uh, Merton lived a very promiscuous, very modern worldly life all over the world. Um, He tells a story in his biography, The Seven Story Mountain. You can think uh, Animal House with a lot more sophistication, if that's even possible. But this was Thomas Merton's life. Then he was converted. God grabbed a hold of him. And he became a Trappist monk. Now, if you're familiar with the orders, and I don't assume that many of you would be, but the Trappist orders are one of the most rigorous orders. You take vows of silence and solitude. So he has gone from this particular lifestyle this promiscuous lifestyle, now to being a monk and, and essentially living in Kentucky and not talking to anyone. And he's written this autobiography called The Seven Story Mountain that has sold now multiple millions of copies. And here's what he says. Here's what he writes in his biography. He says this, There is a paradox that lies in the very heart of human existence. That paradox must be apprehended before any lasting happiness is possible in the soul of a man. Here's the paradox. Man's nature by itself can do little or nothing to settle his most important problems. Man's nature by itself can do little or nothing to settle his most important problems. You walked in this morning and you sat down, and I wonder, even as we open the Bible this morning together, if you believe that for yourself. Do you believe... As the Bible wants you to believe and to know that you need a power outside of you, even as a man, to flourish. That you are insufficient in and of yourself to sustain the burden of what it means to be a man in your own power. That you can do little or nothing by yourself to settle your most important problems. This is the core of Paul's message to the Roman Christians some 2,000 years ago, between 56 and 58 AD, and Paul knew this message very well personally. Many of you may know Paul's story. Here it is in three sentences. Okay? Paul was an educated Jewish man who had a lot going for him. He went from being a persecutor of, the, of Christians, so he was, in the, he was in the majority, in a very good place for him socially. He went from being a persecutor of Christians to a converted missionary. And by Paul's own admission throughout his letters, it was the overwhelming power of God that brought about such a radical change in him. And the change would actually take him, think about this, from riches where he was, to rags where he writes now, to eventual martyrdom, to losing his own life. Now, how do you, go, how do you make that transition? <laughs> how does anyone go from riches to rags, to martyrdom, unless you're convinced that there is another power that is even more alluring than the power of a comfortable life. When Paul writes Romans and he begins to talk about the power of God that has come to grip him, he is writing about it personally. Not as someone who has not tasted it for himself, but someone who is about to die for this very power. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at how Paul begins his letter... All right, two different sections. And I just want you to notice as men, 
when we read these sections, very short sections, that sort of frame the rest of the book, I want you to listen for the word power, okay, in the sections. And I want you to notice what Paul says about where the power of God resides. We've already said that you have to be connected to it in order to flourish. Where do you get it? Where does that power come from? And how do we as men actually come into contact with it? Romans 1, 1 through 5 to begin, and then Romans 1, 16 through 17. Let's read it together. So one of the things that each of you should have is a handout on your table. If you don't have a Bible, then that handout should expose you to the text that we'll be studying together this morning. Certainly feel free to take your own Bible or your cell phones out, which is what I would probably do, and read from those as well. We're going to read the ESV version, not because it's the right version, but because it's the version I had access to at the time. So... Let's read it together. This is God's word to us as men gathered together under his name. Romans 1, 1 through 5, the first passage, how Paul opens his letter. He names himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, when called to be an apostle, apostle set apart from the, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for His sake among all the nations. Now let's skip down to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word to us this morning. Let me pray for us now and ask his spirit to teach us his word as men. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for gathering us this morning. We know it is no small thing to be together. And we also recognize that it is only by your grace that we are permitted to gather freely as we are. Thank you for that permission this morning, and we pray even now that you would pour out your Spirit upon us and give us the grace to know you and to know ourselves, to find ourselves in your story. Challenge us in all the places we need to be challenged, O Lord, we pray, and give us comfort in those places where we need comfort. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a Bible study. We're going to go through and study the passages together. And, you know, if you have a pen, you might want to take notes. We're going to discuss it in a a few minutes with your small groups. So the first thing I just want to tell you um, is the word power in Romans, and you see it twice in the opening sections, uh, comes from the Greek word dunamis. Okay, it's where we get the words uh, dynamite or dynamic. And I just want you to look at the first passage with me for a moment this morning, Romans 1, 1 through 5. And I want you to notice where Paul says the dunamis of God comes from. Where does the power of God reside? Where is it located? So let's take this verse by verse and unpack what Paul is telling us for a moment. In verse 1, I want you to notice how Paul introduces himself. You have to introduce yourself multiple times during the day. Notice how Paul uh, names himself, how he introduces himself to people. He says, Paul, a servant, actually a slave is the word there, a slave of Jesus Christ, And then he says an apostle. Now, an apostle was a herald or an authoritative representative of someone else. Paul is a slave and a herald of the gospel of God. So here's the question. What is, then, the gospel of God? 
You know, you've heard the word before probably if you've been around church, but what is the gospel? Whatever the gospel is, whatever Paul comes to say about it, it is so significant because it has overtaken his own life. Now, some of you may know this, but the gospel literally means, it just translated, it just means good news. But I want you to notice how Paul outlines the content of the good news in the next three verses. Okay, just look at there with me. In verse 2, we learn that the good news, the gospel, first of all, is part of a longer story. Interesting, huh? The gospel itself, Paul tells us, is not technically new. It is rooted in a people that have carried this story forward for generations. And so what Paul wants you to see just at the outset is the gospel is very down-to-earth in that sense. It is gritty. It is real. It has always been embodied. It is always taking shape in the life of real people. Now notice the content in verse two, verse 3. Excuse me. This is very important. In verse 3, Paul says for you this morning that the good news is fundamentally about a person. Now this is uh, extremely important for this reason. The gospel, according to Paul, centers on a person in the flesh. So the gospel, according to Paul, is not first about how God feels about you. It is not first about how you might feel about God. It's not first about our feelings. (laughs) The gospel, according to Paul, is not first about outcomes or actions or benefits. Fundamentally, the good news that Paul wants you to hear this morning is that the gospel is about a singular man. And then I want you to notice in the text how Paul begins to describe this man. Paul calls him the Son of God, and he begins to tell you that this Son of God has the bloodlines of a king. Notice verse 3. Paul says that he comes from Israel's greatest king. He names him as David. Now, David was also called the Son of God in the Psalms. Not only was David called the Son of God in the Psalms, but in 2 Samuel 7, of David's own son Solomon, who would also be the king, God declares of Solomon, I will be to him a father... And he shall be to me a son. Here's what I want you to see. The title, Son of God, in Israel's past was a title reserved for the man in whom the power of God would come to rest. It was a title of authority. It was a title of kingship. And Paul wants you to know this morning, as we read Romans together, that the gospel is fundamentally about this man, this Son of God, this King. And then in 4 and 5, Paul goes on to tell you that... Even more than any other son of God, this one is unique. In verses 4 through 5, Paul tells us that this man, like every king that has come before him, has a coronation day. So you know what a coronation day is, right? Maybe you've seen one or you've heard about it. A coronation day was the day of formality. It was the day of formal declaration when the keys to the kingdom were literally handed over to the next man. Power was transferred over to the next king. Now, I want you to look here. When does Paul say this man's coronation day was? In verse 4. When does he say? His resurrection. Okay? Paul says that that the Son of God, this Son of God's uh, coronation day was the resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God. The formal declaration by his resurrection from the dead. Why is that important? Well, listen to me. No other king in Israel's past had been crowned like this. No other king had been crowned like this. 
a parade was often given for the, for, in the coronation day. They had parades. And what normally happened was, is the new king's enemies were bound up and they were paraded through the city in humiliation. And what Paul is telling you is that with this new king, he has bound up death itself. And paraded by the power of God, death around to humiliate death, to which every other king had been subject. He's like, no other king has come before him. And then notice in verse 5, the reach of the new king's power. What does he say? The power is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among whom? The Middle East? Among Israel? What does it say? Among the nations. So here is the good news of God, according to Paul. This is the good news for which Paul himself has joyfully become a slave. It is summarized in verse 4. In verse 4, you have the whole of the matter. Here is the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. Jesus Christ, Paul says, the cosmic ruler over every inch of the universe. Jesus Christ, the personal master over every aspect of the believer. Paul says to you this morning, this is the best news you've heard ever. Where you sit. You've never received better news than this. And listen to me, even more than just good news for you this morning, look at what Paul says about the gospel in verses 16 through 17 now in our second reading. He begins this way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? What does he call it? Is the gospel another important concept in your life as a man? Is the gospel a new way to brighten your day a little bit? Is the gospel a distraction from your real life of work and family and labor? What does Paul call the gospel? He calls it the actual dunamis of God. So I want you to notice what's happened here in Paul's introduction. Paul is saying that the power of God which resides in a man, a singular man, has actually also come to reside in a message about that man so so that when the gospel itself gets to you, when the message about Jesus Christ gets inside of you, then the power of God, the same power given to Jesus Christ at his coronation day to bind up and to humiliate death, that power comes to bear in your whole life. It belongs to you. (laughs) An early Christian named Theodore, he was a 5th century Christian, Compare the gospel to a pepper, okay? As Texans, we can get this. You've held a pepper in your hand before, right? So imagine doing it. So Theodore said like this, a pepper outwardly, imagine holding a pepper in your hand, a pepper outwardly seems cold to the senses. But the person who crunches it between his teeth experiences the sensation of burning fire. You know that, right? I mean, when our youngest son was two, we were at Buffalo Wild Wings, You even know where the story's going, don't you? I mean, he grabbed one of my Caribbean jerk hot wings. And as the good dad that I am, I didn't stop him. (laughs) Some things you've got to find out for yourself, right? And that that hot wing in that moment felt like every other thing that he had grabbed at the table that night. (laughs) Every other wing that he had had until he bit into it. And when he bit into it, he learned that that hot wing was dynamically different from everything else he had had. It was sweet and then not so sweet. Listen to me, the the power of that wing, 
The power of the pepper is not exposed in the touch. It is exposed in the taste. It's exposed in the taste. So that even as Paul can say, look, you can basically hold out the gospel message in front of you. And you can look at it, and on the outside it appears to be just another religious message. A good story. But if you bite into it, Paul uses the word faith, if you trust it. If you orient your life around those four little words, Jesus Christ our Lord, then it will dynamically change your entire reality. Hope you're ready for it. When you bite into the pepper, into the gospel itself, it begins to undo you and to rebuild you into something you never were before. It changes you dynamically. All the power of God coming to reside in that message, to reside in your own life. And I want you to notice, just in verse 16, look there with me for a moment, what the power of God in the gospel is for, okay? Paul says it in verse 16. It is the power of God for what? What does he say? For salvation. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about much more than going to heaven when you die. All right? It's not talking about like a G-rated toga party in the clouds somewhere. When the Bible talks about salvation, when it uses that terminology in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible means uh, the word uh, shalom, which is wholesale flourishing. It It is about the restraining and conquering of all the enemies of God that would come to bear on your life so that you could actually be the man that God has called you to be. And for the next 16 chapters then, based on his introduction, Paul is going to reveal for you what the power of God towards your salvation means, what it has conquered on your behalf. Here are some of the things he writes about. The power of God in the gospel has come to conquer your shame. It has come to undo the judgment of God against your rebellion. The power of God in the gospel has come to stand against your immorality, your self-righteousness, The power of God in the gospel has come to stand against the futility of you trying to be your own God. The power of God in the gospel has come to stand against your enslavement to sin. Or your enslavement to self-improvement. Death itself and your life. And finally, your own disregard for other people. There's more that Paul listens, but but I want you to listen to how Paul summarizes the totality of the power of God in Romans 8. It's the passage we didn't read on your page uh, this morning, but I want you to listen to it. And as we read this, I want you to listen to the language of power that Paul intentionally uses here. Here's what he says. See if you can trace it back to Romans 1. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Listen to this. More than that, who was raised. It's coronation day language who is at the right hand of God, the seat of power, who indeed is interceding for us. And then Paul writes this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And notice what Paul does next. He names the enemies that are familiar to him. These are his real enemies. This is what Paul faces on a daily basis. Here's his list. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... Now, I don't know you, but I'm guessing those aren't your enemies on a regular basis. Some of them might be. But just think for a moment, what would be in that list for you? Like, what are the real enemies that you face? Is it your anger? Your fears? 
your bad decisions, your selfish ambition, your sexual brokenness and struggles, your failures as a father and a husband. Maybe it's your apathy. And then Paul says, look, shall any of these win? And listen to what he says in verse 37 in chapter 8. He says, no, emphatically. And listen to this. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors. Do you see the language there? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the good news, says Paul. The conquering power of Jesus' coronation day through the power-charged message that Jesus Christ is Lord actually comes to reside in you. Now, as we study this semester together, you're going to find that it doesn't eliminate the struggle for Paul, but it just guarantees the outcome that you are more than a conqueror. Now, imagine that for a moment. How can anyone be more than a conqueror? Isn't being a conqueror enough? What would it mean to be more than a conqueror? I have no idea, but doesn't it sound awesome? That's Paul's point. Like, this is good news. (laughs) You, you don't have to just be a You're more than a conqueror. All these things cannot stand up to the power of God given to you. Imagine that power coming to reside in your own life, in your own family, in your own work. I want you to imagine that this morning. And even more as we begin to think about how this makes sense in our own lives, I want you to be able to recognize this morning, before we leave, the power of God at work in your own life right now. Okay? So before we break out into small groups, here's the question I want us to think about just for a few minutes. How do you know where you sit? How do I know where I stand? (laughs) That I've bitten into the pepper, right? That I'm not just holding it in my hand. How, How do we begin to recognize the power of God at work in our own lives as men? And to begin to see that power and display in all the places to which God has called us. Let me give you three things. Paul names a lot through Romans. Remember, this is a flyover or an introduction. Let me give you three things that he keeps coming back to in Romans. Um, Indicators of the power of God at work in your own life. The first is this. Uh, The power of God, you can recognize it at work in your own life. If you recognize, if you see that you are becoming more hopeful than cynical. If you can see that hope is growing in you even as cynicism dies. Like, you know the voice of the cynic, right? I mean, we're we're in the age of cynicism. The voice of the cynic says this, life will never change. Um, um, My marriage will never change. My children will never change. I'll never change. And what will Paul say over and over in his letter to the Romans? God will not let things stay the same. He won't let them stay the same. God is at work. And change is coming. In fact, in Romans 8, just to point out one of these uh, instances, we'll, we'll get there later in the semester, but Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that God is at work to transform the entire universe. Now imagine that for a moment. Um, you know, you're uh, probably among the most ambitious people that I know. You're among the most ambitious people around. And yet your ambition can't hold a candle <laughs> to the ambition of God. Like, he wants everything, like every square inch he wants. And Paul says the source of our hope is that the ambition of God is actually matched by the power of God. So that by the power of God, all that God is ambitious for actually comes to pass. And when you begin to believe that, to bite into that, you actually notice that the icy heart 
the icy heart of cynicism begins to melt away. And the hope of the gospel, the hope of reality living in God's world begins to dawn on you and to dawn in you. And you find yourself becoming more eager and more bold and more excited. And your own cynicism begins to lose ground. One of the first things that Paul says, one of the first ways that you can recognize the power of God at work in you is that you grow more hopeful. That cynicism begins to melt away. The second is this, and it's a little confusing. I'll see if I can not make it more confusing. Uh, The power of God, uh, Paul will say, is um, the power of God in you actually makes you less bound by your culture. Okay? The power of God at work in you actually makes you less culturally bound. In other words, let me put it like this. You notice in, uh, in your own life that you are growing less controlled by what is considered normal around you in every sense. And you are, you are finding that you are free to receive criticism, wisdom, and generosity from people who are nothing like you at all. Let me unpack that for a moment. One of the most pressing things that Paul is doing throughout his letters is trying to get across is that, uh, that Jews, without losing their Jewishness, certainly without hating their Jewishness, must at the same time become less loyal to it. Jews must be prepared. This really comes across at the end of the letter. Jews must be prepared not just to welcome Gentile Christians, but to actually receive generosity from them, to receive criticism from them. These are the very people that, that Jews had considered unclean. And so here's the historical context of Romans, and it's sort of mind-blowing. Here's what's going on as Paul is writing his letter to the Romans. As he's writing this letter, he is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, you know who lived in Jerusalem, right? It's the, the Jews. He's going back to visit the Jewish churches there. And you know what he's been doing along the way? He's been going to all the Gentile churches, and he has been collecting money from the Gentile churches in order to give relief to the Jewish churches. So here's what's happening. The Gentiles now, in this moment, are sustaining the Jews by their own generosity. The Jews are having to open their hands to the grace of God uh, through the very people that they had historically despised. They are having to welcome the generosity of other people that they had already been sent to bless. And the only way that that had happened is that the power of God at work in them had actually begun to loosen them from their own cultural prejudices. Miroslav Volf, what a name, is a theology professor at Yale, and he puts it like this. He says this, at the very core of Christian identity, at the very core, lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty. Loyalty from a given culture with its gods to the God of all the cultures. Now, I I think what Paul would ask us to do is, or at least name is this, our culture here in North Dallas, like every other culture, comes with its own set of gods. Are we prepared to be loosened from the gods of our own culture? Are we prepared by the power of God to see God redefine what is normal for us in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? One of the things that you'll find God's power doing in your own heart and life is loosening you from your own cultural narrative. And in many ways, this is what it feels like. And other writers will talk about this. It it feels like you're becoming a stranger in your own place. 
It, it feels like you're becoming a stranger in your own place. And all the while, even though you're becoming a stranger in your own place, the gospel promises that it will actually make you more hospitable than you've ever been before. More welcoming, more loving, even as you become a stranger. So how do you know that you're biting into the pepper? Hopeful, not cynical, less culturally brown. And finally, I wanted to say this, and we'll end here. You know, Paul says, that the gospel is at work in you as a man because you can ask for help. Um, One of the ways that you know that the power of God is at work in you is that you're finding that you have the courage and humility to ask for help. So one of the things that all of Romans assumes from the baseline is that you need help. There is no distinction, writes Paul in chapter 3. No one here this morning as we sit is beyond the need for help. No one here this morning as we sit is beyond the reach of help. But I want you, I want you to let this settle for a second. Um, uh, as a man, think about our own vision. Of, we have a funny vision of manhood here in America, don't we? Uh, that vision of manhood is one that elevates the self-made man. So it presents to us the heroic figure in the old westerns, right? It's the cowboy who comes into the village to save the day, mostly alone. And then what does he do at the end of the movie? He rides off into the sunset alone again, proving that he really doesn't need the help of anyone else. Let me offer you this morning a different hero. It's the one whom Paul has already set before you, and this hero, publicly, 2,000 years ago, said this in front of a crowd. I can do nothing on my own. And do you believe that? That Jesus Christ would have the gall to say in front of men and women and everyone else that I can do nothing on my own. I need help for everything. And may I just, may I uh, set this before you this morning, if it is true for Jesus... <laughs> the one whom John himself named as God become flesh, if it is true for him, how much more true is it for you? That literally you can do nothing on your own. Um, uh, You know, Robin Williams died a few weeks ago. Sad, it was tragic. Um, And one of my favorite sports writers tweeted this out. He's not a Christian. He just said this. Right on the heels of that moment, he said, too many men are afraid to ask for help. Don't be one of those men. Too many men are afraid to ask for help. Don't be one of those men. I'd like to end here this morning for you as well. Uh, Paul says, don't be afraid to ask for help when the truth about you as you sit is that you need it. And Paul has already told you that you need a power outside of yourself to flourish that you need a power, the power of the true king, that Paul says is summarized in the words, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that even beyond that, and this is a beautiful picture of it this morning, that you need the power of a shared life. The power of other men walking beside you, men who are themselves tasting the good news, and men who are prepared to bear up your struggle in the harsh realities of your own world. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And when you hear the voice inside of you telling you that you should go ask for help, I want you to do this. I want you to recognize that for what it is. The power of God at work in your own life. The power of God that was given to Jesus to be the king in whom all the power would reside. And the power eventually to make you more than a conqueror as a man.
This is Paul's message for us. Let me pray for us, and I'll dismiss us to our small groups so we can talk about it a little more. Father, thank you for our morning together. Thank you for gathering us as men to hear the word read, um, to believe it together, to think about it together. Lord, we know that there's no knowing you and no loving you outside of knowing you and loving you as your word gives yourself to us. And so we pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us flesh this out now as men in our own places of work, uh, in our family lives, certainly in our own quest for significance and value. We ask, God, that that you would help us to see ourselves in the context of who Jesus is as the true hero, the true man. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.